Hello everyone, my name is Simon Carver and welcome to Dagnall Street Baptist Church's podcast service for Sunday the 13th of March. In this week's services we are focusing on the account that we find in the Gospel according to Luke in which Jesus faced three temptations, having been driven out into the desert by the Holy Spirit. We've just heard the Kendalls sing, Heaven's Just a Sin Away, which sounds to me pretty close to one of the temptations that was offered by the devil. At the end of the service, we'll hear a song that doesn't have a lot to do with our theme, except that it's sung by the Temptations. Somewhere in the middle, we will hear those three queens of country music, Dolly Parton, Linda Ronstadt and Emmylou Harris, sing in a trio a song about being tempted and tried. Just one notice this week, our Lent groups looking at the TV series Broken continue with both sessions being on Tuesday at 2pm on site and at 7.30 on Zoom. You can find further details in today's email or if you're receiving a CD on the flyer that came a couple of weeks ago. Details are also on the church website. And now our call to worship. Some verses from Psalm 91. Those who live in the shelter of the Most High will find rest in the shadow of the Almighty. This I declare about the Lord. He alone is my refuge, my place of safety. He is my God, and I trust him. If you make the Lord your refuge, if you make the Most High your shelter, no evil will conquer you, no plague will come near your home. For he will order his angels to protect you wherever you go. They will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. You will trample upon lions and cobras, you will crush fierce lions and serpents under your feet. The Lord says, I will rescue those who love me. I will protect those who trust in my name. When they call on me, I will answer. I will be with them in trouble. I will rescue and honour them. I will reward them with a long life and give them my salvation.
faithful God, we come to worship you, conscious of our vulnerability, but rejoicing in your protective love. Speak your values into our hearts, your energy into our actions, and your integrity into our lives, that we may use our time well and wisely, and be a church of compassion, conviction, and courage. Dear God, forgive us when the words we speak expose our self-interest. Help us, forgive us, and deepen our faith. Forgive us when the things we do compromise your integrity. Help us, forgive us, and deepen our faith. Forgive us when the way we use our resources clashes with your core values. Help us, forgive us, and deepen our faith. For Christ's sake. As a hen covers her chicks with her wings, so you cover us with your forgiving love, drawing us into a new beginning, a new way of being, a new way of serving, strengthening, sustaining, and surrounding us with your power and your presence each day of our lives and beyond. Amen. A reading from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 4, beginning at the first verse. Then Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan River. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where he was tempted by the devil for forty days. Jesus ate nothing all that time and became very hungry. Then the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become a loaf of bread. But Jesus told him, No, the scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone. Then the devil took him up and revealed to him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. I will give you the glory of these kingdoms and authority over them, the devil said, because they are mine to give to anyone I please. I will give it all to you, if you will worship me. Jesus replied, The scriptures say, You must worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, If you are the Son of God, jump off. For the scriptures say, He will order his angels to protect and guard you. And they will hold you up with their hands, so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. Jesus responded, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. When the devil had finished tempting Jesus, he left him until the next opportunity came. I know from conversations that I've had that people are drawn to the poetic imagery that Graham Kendrick uses in his song, The Servant King. Hands that flung stars into space to cruel nails surrendered. Not to diminish the power of Kendrick's poetry, but this isn't the first time that the hands of Jesus have been used as a basis of an image to help illustrate the mystery of God having taken on our life, our flesh, and then our death. Nearly a hundred years ago, in 1925, G.K. Chesterton wrote an influential work called The Everlasting Man. It is in two parts and tells the history of humankind, of Christ, and of Christianity. 
Chesterton began this history by suggesting that there are two ways of getting home, and one of them is to stay there. The other is to walk around the whole world till we come back to the same place. The everlasting man was not addressed to those who'd got home by the route of never having left. Rather, it was written to those who were still searching for where they belonged. The Everlasting Man was a very significant work in its day, and C.S. Lewis wrote that it was one of the biggest influences in his discovering a living Christian faith. Now, Chesterton's style would now be considered rather dry and difficult for most 21st century readers, but there are certain passages that still retain their power. I don't know whether this was an influence on Graham Kendrick, but in speaking about the paradox of Christ, Chesterton writes... The hands that have made the sun and stars were too small to reach the huge heads of the cattle. In this longer extract, Chesterton addresses how the humanity of Jesus is embedded in who he is. When I was a boy, a more Puritan generation objected to a statue upon my parish church representing the virgin and child. After much controversy, they compromised by taking away the child. One would think that this was even more corrupted with mariolatry, unless the mother was counted less dangerous when deprived of a sort of weapon. But the practical difficulty is also a parable. You cannot chip away the statue of a mother from all around that of a newborn child. You cannot suspend the newborn child in mid-air. Indeed, you cannot really have a statue of a newborn child at all. Similarly, you cannot suspend the idea of a newborn child in the void, or think of him without thinking of his mother. You cannot visit the child without visiting the mother. You cannot, in common human life, approach the child except through the mother. Chesterton converted to Roman Catholicism in later life, and while this might have influenced his analogy of the statue of the Virgin and Child, his point was that Jesus cannot be separated from his humanity. The human and divine in Jesus are not two persons in the way that we think about God as Trinity, as three persons. When I come back from the barbers having had a haircut, Katrina rarely manages to stifle a smirk. The way the barber brushes my hair back turns me into my father. I know this myself, as on the odd occasion I look in a mirror, I see my dad looking back at me. While my characteristics mostly come from my father, I inherited my DNA from my parents, both of them, and it's mixed within me. I can't be separated out into the bits that come from my mother and the bits that come from my father. While the issue of Jesus' genetic makeup is particularly difficult, peculiarly difficult, perhaps we can use this picture to help us understand how Jesus was fully human and fully divine and all of him, the human and the divine, experienced birth and experienced death. As we look back from the perspective of 2,000 years of Christian history, we see that the divinity of Jesus is less an issue than is his humanity. During the course of Jesus' ministry, the reverse was true. There was something different about Jesus. It just wasn't clear precisely what the difference was. As the New Testament tells us, some thought he was Elijah or one of the prophets, while others believed that he was John the Baptist come back from the dead. One or two called him Son of David or Messiah, 
But none of these titles expresses unequivocally that Jesus was divine. This is why what happened on the mountain of transfiguration was so important, because it was there, as his face and clothes shone, and as a cloud came down and enveloped them, Jesus was affirmed by God as his Son. We can understand that this tension between the humanity and the divinity of Jesus is something that's been like a tug of war, in which the rope has been pulled first one way and then another. And this is just the tension that exists amongst those who follow Jesus. What must that tension have been like within Jesus himself? Of course, the answer is that we can't really know. But we do get some clues in the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and the conflict between his will and his Father's eternal purpose. But before then, near the beginning of his ministry, we have this story of his having been tempted in the wilderness. The story I read follows on from the baptism of Jesus. Jesus had already demonstrated that he was a man of prayer, in that we're told in Luke chapter 3, verse 21, when all the people were being baptised, Jesus was baptised too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him. Prayer is central to these events in that having been anointed by the Spirit and affirmed as Son, Jesus was driven out into the wilderness in order to reflect on what this might mean. And what it meant was that Jesus experienced the temptation of being God and being human. Going back at least as far as 1818, when Mary Shelley's novel Frankenstein was first published, a part of horror literature has been to humanise the monster. There is a fascination with what it means to be human, and so we have stories about cyborgs who appear to be human, having the veneer of humanity, but under their skin, they're robots. Then there are stories of a post-apocalyptic world in which roam zombies, people who were once alive, but who, having died, now exist rather than live. The idea of what constitutes humanity has been studied sympathetically in Charlene Harris's American Gothic series, The Southern Vampire Mysteries. In the UK, there was the television series Being Human. The title described how the characters expressed their longing to be something other than who they are, to be human, like the people amongst whom they lived and worked, rather than monsters. Now, I'm not for a minute suggesting that Jesus was in some way trying to simulate being human in order to fit in. However, I do think that this passage might have something to say to us about being human. Of course, we don't need to simulate being human. We are human. But we are also well aware that human beings can often be guilty of behaving in an inhuman fashion. It's common to hear people being said to have behaved like animals, the point being that the behaviour in question is in some way subhuman. In the hymn, There is a Green Hill Far Away, we sing the line, He died that we might be forgiven, he died to make us good. The suggestion in these lines is that we are made good by the death of Jesus, so that we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. 
Now, I'm not sure that Mrs. Alexander, who wrote this hymn, is claiming that the death of Jesus has made people lead sinless lives, but rather that God treats us as if we were good, and so receives us to his side. However, I believe that Jesus does have an effect on our behaviour in this life, and this is partly by example. In this man who is divine, we see what it is to be truly human. And we can learn this no more clearly than when we look at how Jesus was tempted to be other than human when he was confronted by the devil in the wilderness. Let's have a quick look again at the story I read from Luke chapter 4. Jesus was driven into the Judean desert, not by the devil, but by the Holy Spirit. That same Spirit who anointed him at his baptism. For forty days Jesus was left alone to fend for himself and with nothing to eat. While in the desert, the devil confronted him three times. The first time focused on the obvious hunger that Jesus experienced. The devil challenged Jesus. If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Actually, to say challenge suggests that the devil might have doubted the sonship of Jesus. On the other hand, if the devil had not thought that Jesus was God's son, it would rather defeat the object of his being there. The whole point of this dialogue was just because the devil believed that Jesus was God's son. So what was the point of his question? The point was pretty much the same as the point of the other two questions that the devil posed. The devil was saying to Jesus, Look, you don't need to bother with all this wilderness stuff. Just because there's no food about doesn't mean you have to starve. You can rustle up a sandwich from that stone that you're sitting on. Jesus replied by quoting from the book of Deuteronomy, one of the books of Moses that tells of Israel's journey in the wilderness. He told the devil that man does not live on bread alone. During the course of the forty years which the people were wandering in the wilderness, Israel wondered where their next meal was coming from, having left behind what they were now remembering as the comfort of their slavery in Egypt, in favour of an existence scavenging in the desert. Unlike these Hebrew refugees, Jesus proclaimed his faith in God to provide food for him. The second Q&A involved the devil taking Jesus to a place from which all the kingdoms of the world could be seen. The devil offered Jesus power over all that he surveyed. He was offering Jesus a bird in the hand in exchange for two in the bush. But this power was already belonging to God's Son. The lands which the devil offered to him were created by his hands, but he'd left all of that power behind when he left heaven and emptied himself and had given himself up to humanity. The way back to heaven would be a painful one. And here the devil was offering an alternative. Why bother with all that suffering? You could have it all, right here, right now. And all that I ask is that you worship me. But Jesus, again quoting from the words of Moses, asserted that God alone is worthy of worship. The mission of Jesus is not about establishing himself as king, but about establishing God's kingdom over all the earth. 
The devil's last challenge also involved taking Jesus to a high point, but this time to one of the pinnacles of the temple, a very high building. Throw yourself off, said the devil, and God will save you. Now this could be seen as the son challenging the father. I'm going to throw myself off this roof. If you're my father, then prove it. Catch me. This could be the intention, but an alternative view that I find helpful is that Jesus was actually being offered the easy way out. It was like a cat stuck up a tree being encouraged to jump into the arms of a fireman rather than being forced to find its own way back down. But Jesus didn't make that jump. He was prepared to take a different route, the path of continuing danger and hardship. Let's think about the implications of these exchanges for Jesus and for us. If we're going to think about these events as telling us something about humanity, we need to remind ourselves about what the Bible tells us about being human. Paul writes in his first letter to the Corinthians, For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. You see, this connection between Adam and Christ becomes evident in these events in the desert. Adam and Eve might have been immortal. They might have stayed in the garden forever. But no, curiosity got the better of them. God set them a test and they failed. You are dust and to dust you shall return. That was the sentence God pronounced on them. And we have inherited it along with their curiosity and a few other things. But Adam and Eve are not our only ancestors. There is someone else who has claimed us as his brothers and sisters. And we've heard his story today. How the Spirit led him not into a garden, but into a wilderness, where he too was tested. Only he passed. His test was harder. There was nothing as clear-cut as a tree to be avoided, and no specific instructions from God about what or what not to do. And yet somehow... He managed to say no to three tantalizing possibilities and come out of the desert the same person as when he'd gone in, the beloved Son of God. Tradition has tended to blame Eve for the first story, just as her husband did. But in his letter, Paul never mentions Eve. The point is, God drew a line in the Garden of Eden and said, Human beings on this side... God on this side, tree of life on your side, tree of the knowledge of good and evil on my side. Trust me and stay on your own side of the line. The trouble is that wasn't enough for the first human couple. God had given them brains to think with and a serpent with whom to engage in theological discussions. They could see that the tree was good for food and a delight to the eyes. The serpent suggested that God had only forbidden it because he didn't want them to know as much as him. So they decided to trust their own logic rather than God's command. And the next thing they knew, they were looking for a new place to live. There was also a line drawn in this story, and it was as clear as the line in the first story. Jesus could play God or he could remain human. He could zoom around turning the desert into a takeaway pizza restaurant or he could keep his feet on the ground 
and live with the ache in the pit of his stomach, as hungry and tired as anyone would be after a six-week fast. Three times he was tempted, and three times he said no. He refused to cross over the line that God had drawn. For the time being, the devil was defeated, but there is a rather chilling last line to our story. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. We know that this opportune time was when Jesus was just hours away from the torture of the cross, but still he resisted the devil's seduction. The temptation for both Adam and Jesus is the chance to play God. In Adam's case, it was the chance to break out of his dependence on God and know both good and evil for himself. In Jesus' case, it was the chance to revert to the status that he'd given up, to feed every hunger, to be a superman, to control all the kingdoms of the earth. But Jesus knew that God never offers those things. It's only the devil who offers them, and with countless strings attached. But whereas Adam stepped over the line and found humanity a curse, Jesus stayed behind the line and made humanity a blessing. One man trespassed, the other man stayed put. One tried to be God, one was content to remain a human being. Both Adam and Christ are alive and well in us. You can feel them both tugging at you most days of your life. But if Adam's story is our story, then Jesus' story is ours as well. We have both sets of genes in us. They are both our brothers. And when the Adam in us is powerfully tempted to play God, the Jesus in us is more powerfully able to remain human, offering to keep us company on our side of the line and showing us that the way to discover our godlikeness is not to curse our humanity, but to bless it and to enter into it as fully as we dare, living a human-sized life. Just as he did in Eden, the Lord who made us from the dust of the earth offers to breathe life into us, not just at our first breath, but throughout life, again and again and again, as God's Spirit lives in us, day by day.
it overflow Oh Jesus Such love Oh Jesus I love Such love Let us pray Save us, O Lord, from the darkness all around us, from the darkness within our own hearts, from the noontide danger and the shadows of the night. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. In all areas of unresolved conflict in our troubled world, where deep-seated grievances and complex history collide, where shattered lives and destroyed cities are the evidence for our wars and we feel helpless at so much brokenness. God of our hope, we place our trust in you. Help us to walk in your light. In political decision-making on energy, security, aid and sanctions, where true leadership and wisdom matter, when government should meet the needs and not the wants of the people, when costly decisions are needed, and self-interest needs to be set aside for the good of others. God of our hope, we place our trust in you. Help us to walk in your light. In freezing temperatures as snow falls, when the homeless, refugees and frightened families shiver in distress, when our visa policy is too complex and bureaucratic to save the desperate, when in our relatively affluent country some go hungry, and many with homes are struggling to stay warm amid rising energy costs, we know that change is needed. God of our hope, we place our trust in you. Help us to walk in your light. In our relative security and safety in this country, where we are tempted to trust in our own strength, when our compassion fails, when we lack the imagination to walk in the shoes of the dispossessed and we lose sight of our own dependence on you. God of our hope, we place our trust in you. Help us to walk in your light. In the mountains of our possessions, when we spend, acquire and accumulate things that do not lead to life and are obsessed with more, bigger and better, we forget the needs of others. God of our hope, we place our trust in you. Help us to walk in your light. In the tangled conflicts at home, school or work in which we are trapped, when we cannot give in and the desire to win is greater than our search for a resolution, soften our stubborn hearts, we pray. God of our hope, we place our trust in you. Help us to walk in your light. In the absence of safety and home, when refugees flee to the borders in the pauses between shelling, when a humanitarian crisis is building and families are torn apart, and we fear the fresh horrors of the news, God of our hope, we place our trust in you. Help us to walk in your light. In all our dreams and longings, where freedom itself is at stake, and we yearn for a better, fairer and kinder world, Teach us to seek your face and listen to your voice in all our ways and for all of our days. God of our hope, we place our trust in you. 
Help us to walk in your light. Save us, O Lord, from the darkness all around us, from the darkness within our own hearts, from the noontide danger and the shadows of the night. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Amen. Tempted and tried, we're oft made to wonder why it should be thus all the day long. While there are others living about us, never. Cheer up, my brother.
Before our last song, You're My Everything, by The Temptations, a final prayer. Teach me, Lord God, to live out my faith, to show courage when things are tough, to show love to those in need, and to be forgiving even when I'm hurt. Help me to follow Jesus. Amen. Oh, 